All right, let's get started. First Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of Dispersia in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So they are elect pilgrims or elect exiles. That's the point I want you to know. That's how Peter is addressing the people in 60, 64, somewhere between there, under the nice guy Nero, not so nice guy, he burned Christians as candles to light the streets. But not now, not yet. He's not quite there. Things aren't that bad yet. They're just getting reviled verbally, mainly verbal abuse. But the worst is yet coming. They are pilgrims, exiles, but they're elect. They're in the world, but not of the world. All right. 23 through 25. The reason we're doing First and Second Peter, this guy just finished maybe the last, I don't know, six months. We went through First and Second Peter in my church. Verses 23 through 25. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, Whoops, that's the wrong chapter. Jumped too many. 23 through 25. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 1 Peter 2, 11. I think we read that this morning. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners. Sojourners are not inhabitants. They're not residents. They're people who move through. All right? They live in tents. And they move from place to place. You are sojourners. And pilgrims. Pilgrims progress. Always moving on to the celestial city, to his home. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Second Peter two, nineteen through twenty one. You know that one. You ought to anyway, right? It's one of those passages that proves the inspiration of the Scriptures. Second Peter 2, 19. Well, they promised them liberty and themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome by him also he is brought into bondage. Um, you know what I do? I make a lot of mistakes. Somehow I must have given the wrong text to the bulletin secretary. This is supposed to be the passage about suffering and how we stand firm on the Word of God. Verse 
And it says that God's word came not, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but God moved men by the Holy Spirit, carried them along, so that what they wrote was indeed his word. And in his word we have everything we need for faith and godliness. And Pastor Pontier could probably help me find the right verse, but we'll just move on. There you go, 119. When you get old, you make all kinds of typos and all kinds of stuff like that. There we go. Thank you, Pastor. So Peter is telling us there that we do not follow cunningly devised fables, that is, made-up stories about how we got here and what we're supposed to do and where we're going. Everybody believes in a story. They get from their story their beliefs, their gods, and where they're going. We do not follow man-made fables. Nope. What do we follow? We receive from God Himself, His revelation. And we heard this voice. He's talking about Jesus' voice in the Mount of Transfiguration. came from heaven. It's God's voice saying to His Son, You are my beloved Son. When we were with Him on the holy mountain... And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We have to be grounded in the authority of God's Word who was written by the author of life. You get authority because you're the author and God's the author. And He has supreme authority and He gives us His authoritative Word. And if we live by it, we have life. Philippians 3.20 These passages also talk to us about how we are pilgrims and exiles and how we're to live in this age. 320. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11, you all know that chapter, the heroes of faith, This one's about Abraham. What did Abraham live for? 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Dear people of God, times have changed. 
I am now old. I'm 70 years old. The Bible says, A man shall live three score and ten, or if by reason four score. I don't feel old, except when I hurt all over. Seventy, I can't believe that. I got kids who have kids. Unbelievable. And how times have changed in those 70 years. I lived through Christian America. In 1950, when I was born, 57%, that's over half of the people in the United States of America, attended church regularly. And that percentage actually went up to almost two-thirds by 1960. And then it went down by almost one-half by 2013 to one-third. And today, it's one out of four, 24%. Unless you're on the Northeast or anywhere in the West, then it's more like 15%. And that counts all of the cults, all the churches. If you go to church, Pew counts you as going to church. And how many people go to church who aren't Christians? Today, when the four major denominations in the United States have all forsaken the Word of God, So how many of those who go to church are actually Christians? What do we say? 40%? So 40% of 25%, where's the geniuses here? 10%. 10% of Americans may be true Christians. Well, guess what? You live in post-Christian America. This is no longer a Christian country, if it ever was. Morally, I mean, you become what you worship. So just check around and see what America is worshiping. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, you become like the God you worship. Worship is at the heart of what it means to be a human being. Whatever you set your eyes on and you contemplate, you become like that. Post-Christian America, post-worship the true God America is an entirely different whatever, than when a majority of people really knew God and worshipped Him. Morally, well, until 1973, homosexuality was considered a psychological illness. When I worked in the prison, I worked with one client who spent most of his years in prison in the infirmary because he was diagnosed as a homosexual which he wasn't but that's where he was today 2015 marriage was struck down and mental illness or homosexuality was declared an alternate lifestyle equal The family, one of the great institutions, I dare not say, because it's so popular, so I dare not mention the the letters, 
But there's a movement out there who has as a basic one of its tenets to destroy the white patriarchal family because they are the worst enemy of our country. Well, you can bemoan it, but in 1970, some of us who kind of liked President Reagan, he became the first, the first governor in the first state to declare no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce. You know what that did to America? In 1970, the divorce rate was 25%. By 1981, it was 50%. You want to destroy the church, destroy the family, and you destroy Christianity. And destroy the Sunday also, you know. Put NFL football on Sunday afternoon. Dr. Godfrey always told us about that at seminary. He predicted it would kill the church's attendance. Well, you know what? The good news is divorce today has gone down. Only 40% of those who get married divorce today. It's not good news, though. It's the truth because cohabitation is more common than marriage among those who are 25 and under. And 60% of all couples have cohabitated before they get married, if they do bother to get married. Marriage in the family is different today. You know what the definition of marriage is? Any group of people who decide to live together. New definition of family. 50% of people believe that cohabitants should be treated equally with married people, including all legal benefits. They even believe that cohabitants can raise children just as well as two-parent families. At the same time, some years ago, 85% of adults who are 40 and over were part of a two-parent family with at least one child. 85% of those 40 and over, today 55% of those 40 and over, have ever lived for any time in a two-parent family. And of course, that follows from the fact that 40% of all babies are born out of wedlock, compared to 28% in 1999, and when I was born, 5%. It's a different world. Indeed, we live in a post-modern, post-Christian world. Now, I'll be careful. Then there's sexuality. There's the influence of this guy by the name of Freud and how it has dominated our culture. In 1953, Hugh Hefner started Playboy magazine. In 1967, Denmark became the first nation on this planet to decriminalize pornography. In 1968, our then-president, Lyndon Bain Johnson, appointed a pornography committee, which did nothing and never has. And today, one-fourth of all searches on the Internet are porn-related and porn website traffic is greater than all the traffic on Netflix, Twitter, Amazon combined. 
and 64% of all young people use porn weekly, and 71% of those 64% young people, their parents don't know it. And 30% of all the content on the Internet is pornographic. It is an age of narcissism. It is the world that revolves around me. The only absolute is there are no absolutes except me, myself, and whoever I want to be. I can create my own image of myself. I am a plastic self who can make myself into whatever I want to portray myself as. I determine my identity. Self is who I am, and I can be whatever I want to be. If I feel like it, I can believe it, and I can do it. If I feel like being a, man's in a, a man in a woman's body, I can do it. If I feel like being a woman in a man's body, I can do it. As many graduates are told in high school and in college and in university graduation every year by great speakers, you can be whatever you want to be, and you can do whatever you want to do, and you can reach your dreams. Because when God is dead, man is God. And today's world is all about feelings. Not reason thoughts, which follow from science and logic. It's postmodern. And certainly not norms. Norms? Greek word? Namas, laws. Certainly our world is not about laws that come from God. No, today we live in an age of therapeutic man. Feel good. Therapeutic. Psychological man. All about the internal me and who I want to be. And we are individualistic. We have community on the Internet where we've never met the other person. And we don't even know if their name is true. That's our community. We are individualistic to the max. And so we have what we call individualistic emotivism. That is the only ethical norm. Indivisible, individualistic Emotivism. Everyone must be true to himself. The highest moral, you know what morals are, they're the habits of a culture. And the highest habits of our culture is you must, it's the only law, be true to yourself. And you can be whatever you want to be. And you and I don't just tolerate. No, we can't just tolerate. We have to celebrate the dignity of every self. Whatever somebody wants to be, you have to accept and dignify or you're the enemy 
The only truth that won't be tolerated is if you think you're right. And even if you use the word right and wrong. Because right and wrong have no meaning. Because they're cut off from God. So they have no source. It's gibberish. It's not true talk. You can't use those terms. You will not be tolerated if you think you're right. Because that'll be hate speech. You dignify evil. Surprise? Paul said they will turn evil to good and good to evil. Welcome to the world of 2021. Now, the reason we're going through this, right, is because ministers are required to do three things. Take the Bible and exegete it properly. Hermeneutically, take the Bible's correctly interpreted message and make the jump to today's world and then homiletically apply it. Right now, we are analyzing our culture so that we can properly apply the words of First and Second Peter to your life tomorrow morning. It's all about self and dignity. So if I choose to be LGBTQ or plus, I am to receive the same respect and the same honor as whoever you choose to be, unless you choose to think you're right, then you're the criminal. And you will have to be silenced. From the Bible's perspective, we truly live in a wicked and lawless generation in a time in human history in which the beliefs of the culture and the lifestyles of the people have changed more in the last 70 years at a faster rate than in any time in human history. Never has something that was considered wrong been declared right with honor in 40 years in any culture in the history of this world. I have lived through the world of Woodstock, anti-Vietnam, anti-government authority, free love, sexual revolution, radical feminism, gay pride, homosexualism, lesbianism, and now transgenderism. God is dead secularism. There is no God. There is no ultimate reality. There is no normal because there is no norms. We are an anti-cultural culture. We are here to destroy culture. If you don't believe it, why are we rewriting the history of the United States of America as a country that was founded and became great on the backs of victimization of slaves? There is no God, no ultimate reality, and we will destroy all culture because man is basically good and culture corrupts. 
So we have to destroy culture because it's our enemy. Because there are no longer norms or mores or laws. Because morals and laws and ethics and norms are based upon a lawgiver and a judge. And when God is dead, there's no basis for truth, right and wrong, good and evil, anything else absolute. Indeed, Nietzsche, if you happen to know any philosophy, is the father of nihilism. That means nothingness. He wrote a poem, this is in the 1800s already, called The Madman. You need to go home tonight and look up The Madman and read it. Nietzsche had the integrity to tell the rest of the liberals who didn't believe God exists exactly what the world would look like if they actually practiced what they believed. He said there'll be no up and down, there'll be no good and bad, there'll be no morning and no night, and the world hasn't figured out how to celebrate the funeral service for God, and they have no idea how they're going to go forward without him. But he's dead. And he's dead because Darwin took away the need for him with evolution. We're nothing but intelligent animals who accidentally came out of a mud puddle and will go back to a mud puddle. And if you start with nothing and you end with nothing, how do you get something significant in the middle? No meaning, no purpose. And then there came along Freud. He talked about id and super id and super id with super ego. And he's supposed to control id. But id is the sexual lusts which need to be let loose in your life. And so we have an over-sexualized society everywhere. And sex has become political as never before. Because it can be used to destroy God. And then we have existentialism. Maybe never heard of it. Exist. It's only about right now. Here and now, this moment. And then today, we are all the product of the Enlightenment and Romanticism. And Rousseau, who said man is basically good. Do you know that even 80% of Christians on an evangelical test put man is basically good? Well, if man is basically good, what's the problem? Culture. Culture corrupts. Destroy all culture. And then just see what comes from it. Hegel, Marx, communism, dictatorships, police state. All right, that's the world, folks. It's a new world where every person can do what is right in his own eyes. And if it weren't for God's common grace, by which he restrains sin... And his providential sovereign rule from heaven by which he can guide and do anything he pleases. And thank God he only pleases to do what pleases him. And he's God and he's perfect. And he's the definition of right and wrong and good. And if it weren't for his remnant church, who is still a little bit of a salt and a light, we would again face a world like Noah where every thought of man was nothing but evil continually. So, people of God, what are we to do? Well, welcome to the New Testament early church.
We've been here before. You don't have to be afraid. This is the world before 431 when Constantine became the Christian emperor and began Christendom. Where the church and the state were related and Christianity had influence because it was legalized and in fact became the only legalized religion. And for 1,500 years we had Christendom and we had Christian America. But it isn't anymore. Welcome to the world where Christians still believe in a sovereign God. They believe in a God-man Savior. They believe in an authoritative revelation. And they trust God to do whatever He pleases, and we know He has a perfect plan. So we do not fear. So how should we live in such a world? Well, it's the world that Peter lived in. It's the world of the Lord Jesus Christ under Nero. It's the early church. Hey, we've been here before. It's to these readers in 60 A.D. that Peter writes 30 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And what does Peter say? Hey, wake up, Christian. You are an exile in this world. You are a sojourner. It isn't about your best life now. You are on the march to a better land and a better place. Your homeland and your citizenship is in heaven. Old Testament Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, in the Old Testament, God said, we're going to start over. I'm going to take you out of Egypt, I'm going to form you into a nation, and I'm going to put you in the promised land of rest. And I'm going to clean the place up for you. Trust me. Obey me. We will wipe out all the people, genocide, yes, holy war, just like the flood, and we'll start over. And you will be my people, and I'll be your God. And how did it go? In the land of milk and honey, where there wasn't to be any paganism and idolatry, Joshua said, you cannot serve the Lord your God when he died. Joshua's saying, it won't work. You can't build the kingdom of God on earth. Noah, come out of the ark and repopulate the earth. And the first thing you know, he gets drunk and his son commits an act of homosexuality and uncovers his father. There you go. We cannot bring the kingdom of God into this world. So forget about forming a new Christian America. It can't happen. Because this world is passing away. We live in this world, but we are not of this world And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Of course we must pray for our culture and where we live and the people we live next to. Even the exiles in the Old Testament were commanded to pray for the cities in which they're going to live for 70 years until God brings them back into the promised land. 
It's a favorite text of everybody who's asked to speak at the mayor's prayer breakfast. I don't know how appropriate it is. But that's the way we use the scripture. No, we are sojourners. We live in tents. And we're just moving through. And the only thing we can take with us to the next world are people. You were created for people. God created you to have a relationship with Him and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about fellowship and relationships. And the only thing that was created in God's image are human beings. And the only thing that will pass from this age to the next age through the resurrection of a spiritual body reunited with their soul are people. So if you want to build the kingdom of God, evangelize and have huge families and spread a godly race. But forget about trying to build God's kingdom here that will pass on into eternity. Because if you haven't read the rest of the book, Revelation chapter 19 tells you that everything of this world goes up in smoke. I remember my, some of the final words of my father as I stood by his bedside as he was dying. He said to me, he called me John because his name was Bernard also. He said, John, this dying business is far harder than I thought it was going to be. I guess I drove my stakes in too deep. I wasn't a good sojourner. Remember, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. So, number one, remember you're an exile, a sojourner. This world is not your home. You have a living hope, an inheritance unfading, undefiled, and incorruptible, and eternal in the heavens waiting for you to be unfurled at any moment when Jesus comes again. And you are a citizen of that kingdom, and that's your focus. Secondly, Peter said to his reasoners, Don't be surprised by suffering. That's what he said. Don't be surprised by suffering. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have tribulation. You know, we're one of the only generations in the history of Christianity that hasn't been persecuted. When I go visit my interns who interned with me in Alaska, in the Philippines, and in the Ukraine, and in South America... They all live in either communist or communist socialist countries. And they keep their heads down because they're being continually watched. But once they get into their house, they play with their kids and read the scriptures and they have wonderful fun and joy. And it isn't as bad as you might imagine. And the church over there on Sunday morning is full When I started streaming my messages in Alaska, I got 50 hits. But my intern in Ukraine and Kiev got 5,000. Because those people are hungry for God. 
How are you going to prepare yourself so that you're not surprised by suffering and you're not, secondly, the whole book of Second Peter is about what? Watch out for false teachers. Watch out lest you be led astray. How are you going to prepare yourself and your children? Simple answer, abide in me and in my word. What does Peter say? We have everything we need for faith and godliness. We have an absolutely authoritative scripture, no word of which has been given by the man or be interpreted by a man, but everyone is given by the Holy Spirit as he carried man alone, so that man's word is 100% God's word. People of God, we must abide in Christ and we must know his word frontwards, backwards, inside out, because it's the only solid ground. You must see Jesus in the Old and the New Testament. You must know the story of salvation. It's the greatest story ever told. Peter said, we do not base our lives on myths. Everybody bases their life on a story. Our story begins this way. In the beginning, God. Darwin's story starts this way. A living cell from which everything else evolved with chance over great periods of time, spontaneous self-combustion, spouse generation. You know what that is? A nonsense statement because nothing comes from nothing. But that's what the world believes. That's why it's called nihilism. And it has no purpose and no meaning. But that's the world we live in. Why are all the kids at the universities concerned about identity? Because their teachers are just like Pilate. They go to get educated, to get to be, to learn something. And what do they learn? They learn to be skeptics and ask questions with no answers. What did Pilate say to Jesus? What is truth? Are you kidding me, Jesus? You believe in truth? You are so naive, Jesus, that you believe in truth? You believe there's absolute? No, 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 no. The only thing that's absolute is me. I think, therefore I am. And I am whatever I want to think. I hate the fact that philosophers have such great influence when they are so unbiblical, ungodly, and even illogical. But you and I have a story that happened in reality, that took place in history. It's the story of creation, fall, and redemption. And it's the unfolding of God's revelation through the Old and the New Testament of Revelation. Of His story and His plan and how it's all about the seed of the woman who will destroy the serpent. And Jesus is everywhere in the Scripture, as He said after He raised from the dead to the two men on the road to Emmaus, What's your problem, guys? And He began with Genesis and went through Malachi and showed them Himself in all the Scriptures. We must know the Gospel. 
Because the drama of the story of redemption forms the doctrine and the beliefs and the dogma that drives your life. You believe the wrong story, you'll have the wrong identity. You believe the story of the Scriptures and you derive your doctrine and your dogma from that, and I'll guarantee you, you'll be in church doxology, worshiping, and you'll live a de-discipleship life. It's drama, doctrine, doxology, discipline, discipleship. The wrong story, the wrong God, the wrong worship, the wrong life. The only true historical story based in reality take place in history. And you know the truth. I am the truth, Jesus said. And he who knows the truth is set free from the lie of the false myths of the devil. So there's your number one. You're in exile. Number two, you better know the story. You better be deep in your dogma and doctrine. You better be in doxology and worship every Sunday on the Lord's Day to remind you. Because what's the most used word in the book of Deuteronomy? The redoing of the covenant. Remember. Why is that? Because how long do people remember? And how quick do they forget? And what happens when people forget? They repeat the same mistakes again and again and again and again and again. And if you forget who your God is, you don't have a clue who you are. And why you're here. And what you're supposed to do. And where you're going. So know the Bible. And know the story. And know your heroes. I had a girl in my Bible class. I had to watch her like a hawk because she was always looking at her iPhone during Bible class. So I said to the guy behind her, would you have a mirror, please? Would you hold the mirror up during class so I can see what she's looking at on her iPhone? So I can call her out. You know who she's looking at? I didn't because I didn't know any of those people. I think one of them was Millie Silas. And I don't know all the rest of the names of all those people. But her heroes were all of this world. I had, I had cowboys in my church who would pay more money to go to some place where they would shoot off smoke and firecrackers and some guy would come out dancing with a guitar and sing a country song where he lost his dog and his wife in his car. Well, what kind of heroes? You know, the first catechism I taught in the first church in 1976 in Woden, Iowa, the junior high catechism class, I said, who's the most important person in your life? Can you guess what they said? Come on now. Elvis Presley. Not Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ. That's not the home I was born in. I was born at a kitchen table where we had devotions, and my father read the stories from the Old Testament, and I wept about the 
I, I cried when I heard that Moses died and didn't get to go into the promised land. I identified with Daniel. Daniel, who could serve God in a foreign country, underneath the greatest king, and not by his power, but by God's power, bring that king to confess that there was no God who was greater than the God of Daniel and his three friends. Your heroes are Ruth and Rahab and Queen Esther and Joseph and Daniel and Abraham, the father of all believers, and Moses and Joshua and King David. And they're your family. You are closer to them than your brother if he doesn't believe in Jesus. I tell the millionaire members of my church, why are you going to give your inheritance to your children who don't love Jesus? Whose side are you on? What are you seeking to do with your money? Give your money for missionaries for the training of pastors, for the building of true remnant churches that will last through whatever the next, the Lord tarries, hundred or thousand years. Why would you invest in this world? It's all going to burn up. And then you need to know how to communicate. Right? Peter said, you need to live such lovely lives. You need to suffer with such humility and graciousness that they look at you and they say, you are not normal. And you say, you are right. You are not of this world. You are of a different planet. You march to a different drummer. You serve a different God. We beat you up and you pray for us. Remember Solzhenitsyn? Finally, those who were tormenting him in the gulags of Siberia in the Soviet Union said to him, Solzhenitsyn, What makes you tick? And he said, Jesus Christ. You know, the Philippians, they were really quite upset when Paul got thrown into prison. So they they communicated to him, and Paul had to write a letter to the Philippians. And Paul said, What are you guys worried about? I'm right here where I'm supposed to be. Guess what? I got a captive audience. The guard of the Caesar's household has to come in here every day and get chained to me to keep me in prison. So I get to preach to them all day. Guess what? Most 
of the household guard of Caesar has become Christians. You know why I like to preach in prison? Because there's no time limit. There's no time limit. And I have a captive audience. And they don't want to go back to their cell. So I get a two-hour free period. They used to sing and dance for 30 or 45 minutes to their whatever songs. But I put it into that. I said they could sing one song at the beginning and one at the end. And the rest of the time I was going to preach. And if they start to fall asleep, I just walk down the aisle, grab them by the shoulder and start asking them questions. We have to learn how to communicate. We have to make Jesus Christ beautiful to this world. The only moral ethic of our new world is the ascetics. Authenticity and their sense of emotive beauty. That's why it's all about feelings. Hey, you want to change the culture in the world? All you have to do is go on the internet and watch how those who want the Christian Reformed Church to adopt same-sex marriage this summer are arguing, and I can guarantee you what it's going to be. They're going to tell stories about their children who think they're homosexuals. You know, I had students in Christian school come up to me and they say, Pastor Bernie... I got a friend who thinks he's a homosexual. And I said, well, does he know Jesus? He said, yeah. And I said, well, then he's in Christ. I said, go back to him and tell him, wait a minute, your identity is in Christ. That's what defines you. Why do you define yourself by some really weird feelings that you have? that may be authentic to you, but the Bible says they're ungodly. Hey, I was born with some of those feelings. I still fight some of those feelings every day of my life. I was a red-blooded boy. I might have lusted. I did. But I didn't say to everybody, I'm now a lustful Christian. I'm now a gay Christian. I'm now a same-sex attracted Christian. No! Because the Bible says that's not your identity. But they're going to say, but he was born that way. Well, I was born a sinner too. And I had to fight off a lot of stuff. Your identity is in Christ or it's in the devil. So Jesus told the Pharisees, He said, Because you don't believe in me, you're of your father, the devil. If you believed in me, you'd be true children of Abraham because Abraham saw my day and he believed. And it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And therefore he's the father of all who believe in Jesus. Now, you know how to communicate. The first thing you do, Peter says, 
If you're going to communicate the gospel, you have to dedicate yourself to the Lord Jesus' life and live a beautiful life. You have to live such a beautiful life that you make other people jealous. How are you going to do that? In church. That's right, in church. You are going to form a community of God's people. You're going to see the church as the greatest earthly resource of your life. And when your neighbors say, how are you doing? You're saying, I love my church. The church is the source of my Savior and my Bible and my life and my fellowship and my friends and my community. And it is such a beautiful community. You know the world is dying for community. The Bible tells you that plain and simple. Man was created in the image of God. Male and female was he. And man was created for fellowship. You know that the world is dying to see a true community. When you believe that the church is the greatest human resource, the mother of God's people, and you love your mother, the day the Christian Reformed Church started to go the wrong direction, I cried. It was the death of my mother. You have to make this church so beautiful that all the people in Pella and all the people in Marion County and all the people in Iowa and all the people in the world want to be a member of Christ's church. Because your life is about community. If you've ever been to a communist country and you get into trouble, you know who you don't call? The police. Because it's a police state. You know who you do call? The members of the church who are your friends. Your security is in Christ and His body. And your health and your wealth and your life and everything about you is determined by your relationship to Jesus and His church. And you're driven by the gospel. Peter says you have to live such good lives that they ask you questions so that you can give a reasonable defense of the faith. (laughs) My wife said, could you really see the clock this morning? I said, no. (laughs) She said, did you really care? I said, no. You have to be ready. That's a Boy Scout thing, right? Ready for everything. You have to be ready all the time. That means you have to be prepared. You have to go to Boy Scout school and get your Eagle badge. You have to be the best. You have to be the best possible communicator of God's Word. Having lived a life that is completely committed to Christ and is beautiful, so that if they harangue you and revile you, They get smitten consciences. That's what Peter says. That's the challenge for the people of God. 
living in the new 2020 America. That's how the New Testament church grew. You know, the New, uh, the new Testament church was badly misunderstood. The New Testament church, you know what they believed? They believed they were cannibals and atheists. That's what the world around the New Testament church said. If you read the early documents, they say those Christians are cannibals and they're atheists because we went into their places of worship and there's no idols. So they're obviously atheists. And we only hear them talking about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. So we know they're cannibals. Now, I challenge you to leave Pala, Iowa, go to inner city Des Moines, find a ninth grade boy who's never been in a church and ask him what he thinks of a Christian. And I guarantee you, you will not recognize yourself. They have no idea. They have absolutely no idea what it means to be a Christian. You ask any unbeliever what it means to be a Christian, he'll give you an absolutely wrong answer. Why? Because we haven't communicated that what it means to be a Christian is a person who is loved and accepted and calls God his Father and is filled with joy and peace. And is the happiest and the healthiest person in the world. You know, my wife worked, my son-in-law works in Alaska in the Native Hospital. You know what the motto of the Alaska Alaska Native people is? We are the healthiest people on earth. You know what the truth is? Well, I ain't going to tell you. It ain't good. They lead. Alaska leads the United States in suicide. I know a pastor who had 20 suicides in his church in two years. In a Native community. They lead the nation in sexual abuse and in alcoholism. It's not their, it is their fault, but it's not their fault. It's part of the culture. It's part of what happened. We didn't bring them to Christ when we took over Alaska. We didn't communicate. We haven't evangelized the native people of Alaska. And they're far from the happiest and the healthiest people in Alaska. But you should be. Because you serve the true and living God and you ought to be the happiest and the holiest and the wholest and the most satisfied and most content and beautiful people in the world. Because you become like the God you worship. And your God is beautiful. And that is our challenge. To live in 2021... And as long as the Lord tarries, and that's the way God would choose to build His church and His kingdom, by you being ready to wipe away all their misunderstanding and live and describe for them the joy of Jesus and the peace that passes understanding and the hope that is more solid than a rock, and love them with no less than the love of God that He poured into your heart. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
You're the head of a new human race. We have been crucified and died. We've been resurrected. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And we have a true, small beginning. And if we depend entirely upon you, and we immerse ourselves in your word, and we pray for the power of your spirit, and we wait upon you, and we seek to follow your leading, we trust that you will fill your house. And even if you don't, choose to save our neighbor or our own children, we will be faithful. Because you deserve all the glory and the honor. So Lord, help us to live not me-centered a life and help me not to be defined by me, myself, and I. And thank you for teaching me from the smallest child that I am not my belong, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and death. And he's delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. And he invites me to call God my Father. And he filled me with his Holy Spirit so that I can live wholeheartedly for you every day of my life. Thank you, Lord, that I was born in a family and in a place where I was taught what it meant to be a human being. And we pray for the lost. And our hearts break for the lost. And we have compassion upon the crowds. Because they don't know their right hand from their left hand. They are a nowhere people going to a nowhere place. Serving no God. For no reason with no hope. And it's only by grace that we see. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father. Bless us this week. Don't let us neglect a single opportunity to speak of you and to live in such a way that people would ask questions of us And if they don't, give us the right question to ask them to begin a conversation that might change their life forever. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.